we tend to worship our work, to work at our play, and to play at our worship. We tend to worship our work, work at our play, and play at our worship. That's a quote from Charles Swindoll as he examined what he saw as the state of American Christianity and the way we engage God in worship. Could it be true of us in this room this morning that far too often we play at our worship? When Jesus has come into our life to transform us. And Jesus wants to make a difference in our worship. And we'll see that this morning in the book of Colossians. So turn there with me, Colossians chapter 3. As we continue our study, line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful New Testament letter. We're in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 16. We're going to read down through verse 17. I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Great attendance this morning on this beautiful uh, Sunday morning. Uh, just a reminder of how much we need the expansion space behind this wall. Uh, so we're getting really close. The wall will come down soon and uh, we think in the month of March we will be in the expanded facilities. We'll have more chairs in here, more space to grow and so praise the Lord for that. So we're getting really, really close and so just keep that uh, in mind Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 the Bible says let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name, and we are so grateful for this privilege of corporate worship, Lord, that we can gather together and sing praises to your name and fellowship around your word and experience you, Lord, speaking to us through your word. And Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would take the word of God and, and open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand it and Give us the conviction and the strength to obey what we learn. And may the name of Jesus be lifted up in this place. Lord, establish my steps today in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, in the first two chapters of the book of Colossians, Paul, writing to the church of Colossae in the first century, uh, shares with them, the wonderful doctrinal realities concerning Jesus and his redemptive work. He reminds them of who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done, what it means to be saved, what it means to, to know Christ in a personal way. And then in chapter 3, Paul begins to unpack the implications of knowing Christ. It's as if Paul's saying, now that you're in relationship with him, now that you are united with him, Jesus is going to make a difference in your life. And we've been studying the past few weeks the difference that Jesus makes. A couple weeks ago, we, we talked about the difference that Jesus makes in the area of purity. Last week, we talked about the difference that Jesus makes in the area of relationships. 
And this morning we're going to talk about the difference that Jesus makes in our worship. When Jesus has, uh, has his way in your life, it's going to make a difference in your worship. Now, just kind of a quick heads up about next week. Next week, we're going to study the difference that Jesus Christ makes in our marriage. So be here next week for that. But before we continue on thinking about the difference that Jesus makes in worship, I want to start with just a, a definition of worship. This is sort of a comprehensive view of what worship is, thinking about all of what the Scripture tells us about worship. Worship, this is in your notes, worship is directing our mind's attention our heart's affection, and our will's allegiance to God. Every part of that definition is important. Our mind's attention. In other words, God wants us to worship based upon truth. He wants us to worship upon, based upon what is true, what is accurate, uh, the word of God, doctrinal realities. And so we need, to, we need to give God our mind's attention. Let truth fill up our minds. Let truth uh, inform our thoughts and our beliefs. But worship is not just for the mind. Worship is also for the heart. I want you to understand this morning that God is after your emotions. God is after your affections. God wants you to be warm-hearted toward Him. He's, he's not just in, uh, into you learning some things in your mind and being a little bit theologically smarter. God wants what you know about Him to cause your heart to overflow with adoration and appreciation for Him. God is after your heart. And also, God is after your will. Worship is setting your mind's attention, your heart's affection, and your will's allegiance upon God. In other words, when you worship, you are responding to God's goodness in your life. You are saying, because of what you've done for me, because of who you are, I'm responding by giving you my entire life. I'm surrendering all to you. And if you come to a gathering like this, and you spend some time here, and you leave, and you have not surrendered all, you have not worshipped. And so that's a definition of worship. And in this passage that we just read, there are three primary ways that we can think about worship from this passage, or we ought to think about worship from this passage. So let me give you these three ways. The first is this. We think about worship as a gathering. That's the primary way that you and I think about worship. The gathering together on a Sunday morning to worship God. And Paul has that in view too. Look what the Bible says there in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Now, how can you teach and admonish one another if you're not together? Right? I mean, you've got to get together to do that. Over in Hebrews 10... Uh, the writer of Hebrews says we ought to encourage one another, spur one another on to love and to good works. And then it says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. If we're going to encourage each other, if we're going to spur each other on, we've got to be around each other. We've got to gather together. We've got to assemble together. And all throughout the pages of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, we see the priority that God places on His people getting together, His people assembling to worship. So what we're doing here in this room this morning is biblical. We are gathering together to worship God. Now here's the big question. What should happen when we all get together? There's a lot of different views on that. There's, there's some debate on what should happen when God's people get together in the same room. What, what should happen? Well, first of all, when we gather, the Word of God should be front and center. What we do should be, be built upon the foundation of the Word of God. It's, it should center on 
the word of God. Look what Paul says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That word dwell means to, to make it home. So Paul's saying, let the word of Christ, the truth, uh, the doctrine realities concerning Christ and what he has done, let the word of God make its residence among you. The word of God, listen to me, should be at home when we gather together. The word of God should dwell in our midst. The word of God should be front and center. And the word richly speaks of the quality of that dwelling. In other words, the word of God should play a major role in your life and in my life. I like what Douglas Moo writes. He writes, Paul is urging the community as a whole to put the message about Christ at the center of its corporate experience. Specifically, Paul urges them to let it dwell richly among them. The message about Christ should take up permanent residence among the Colossians and also among the folks at Longview Point. It should be constantly at the center of the community's activities and worship. Richly suggests that this constant reference to the word of Christ should not be superficial or passing, but that it should be a deep and penetrating contemplation. Listen, that enables the message to have transforming power in the life of the community. So in other words, we're not just giving lip service to the word of God. We want the word of God to play the major dominant role in our worship gathering. We want the word of God to inform us. We want the word of God to transform us, right? It's front and center. It's not, it's not a second thought. The word of God drives everything that we do. Something interesting happened in church history in the 1500s. Around that time, the, the church of the day had, had lost uh, the, the true gospel. They, they weren't preaching the true gospel. They had, they had shifted to a, a, a doctrine of salvation by works. You've got to do the right things and be a part of the church and practice the, the ordinances and the sacraments in order to be right with God. It was a works-based theology, and it was wrong. And, and so there were some people in the 1500s that began to study the Word of God intently, and they saw that what the church at large was teaching did not line up with the Word of God. They saw that salvation is not by works. Salvation is through justification by faith. And they began to teach that doctrine and, 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 and teach those truths in the Word of God. That happened. There was controversy. And there was a reformation that took place in the church. Commonly referred to as the Protestant Reformation. And what happened in these churches that were going through this reformation was interesting. Before the Reformation, in, in, a, in the usual church of the day, the center of the worship gathering was the Lord's Supper table. And the priests would oversee all of that, and everything was built around the dispensing of the elements because they believed that there was grace in the dispensing of the elements. They didn't believe the Lord's Supper was just symbolic. They believed that it actually gave you grace and made you right with God. And so the, the center of the worship gathering was the Lord's Supper table, and the priests officiating the service from the Lord's Supper table. The, the, the lecture, the, the, the lectern was over on the side. When they would you know, teach a lesson or a homily, it would be over on the side. The Lord's Supper table was in the middle. But when the Reformers began to, to start churches and began to lead churches, they made a major change in the structure of the actual furnishings in the worship center or the sanctuary. You know what they did? They took the pulpit, the lectern, and they put it right in the middle. As if to say, we are going to let the Word of God be front and center. What the Bible says will be the foundation of what we teach, what we believe, 
how we practice the Word of God will drive everything. That's why this, this pulpit is right here in the middle. Because we believe the Word of God should be front. Not my opinions, not my ideas, not my views, but the Word of God should be central to what we do when we get together. Now, how do you do that? How's the Word of God front and center? Well, he gives us some insight there. The first word he shows us is the word teaching. Look what it says in verse 16. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching one another. The word teaching means the orderly presentation of Christian truths so that a person may know what to believe and what to do. So we're called to take the Word of God in an orderly manner and present the entire counsel of God so that the body of Christ may know what to believe and the body of Christ may know what to do, how to serve God, how to glorify Him. Teaching is a major part of how the Word of Christ is to dwell in a central way in our gatherings. The next word is the word admonishing. Look what it says. Teaching and admonishing. The word admonishing means to warn and correct. To exhort one another to live in accordance with the truth we are taught. So in other words, God is not interested in us just getting smarter. That's not what the teaching of the Bible is about. God wants us to take what we learn, listen, and obey it. James says that he doesn't want us to be, God doesn't want us to be just hearers of the word only. He wants us to be doers of the word. And so we're to teach, and then we're to admonish one another, to, to, to correct if we need correcting, to warn if we need warning, to encourage if we need encouraging. But we're to come together and say, this is the word of God. Let's believe it, and let's do it. Let's do it. And so that's how the word of God is front and center, teaching and admonishing. But then Paul says, with wisdom, look what it says in verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. This means our teaching and admonishing should be done in in appropriate ways, with insight into the audience and the situations they encounter. So in other words, if I go to a third world country and, and, I'm, and I'm preaching the gospel, I'm not going to share an illustration about iPhones, right? It wouldn't fit in their context, and it would, it would, it would, it would, it would cause confusion when it comes to the pressure. I would just, I would just share the gospel in a, a way that they understand. And in this context, we know each other's needs. We know what's going on in each other's lives. We know the areas in our life that we need the Word of God. And so we share it with wisdom in appropriate ways in the body of Christ. And so how do we make the Word of God central in our worship? Teaching, admonishing with wisdom. So what do we do when we get together, Wade? We make the Word of God the, central, the centerpiece of what we are all about. And by the way, if that's not happening, then what are we doing? We're just a social gathering, right? Just kind of make each other feel good, maybe. But never hearing truth. But there's another thing we ought to do when we get together. Not only should the Word of God be front and center, but we are called to sing when we gather. When we gather, we are called to sing. Look what he says there in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Here's the third participle. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I want you to understand this morning that singing is God's idea. Did you know that? Music is God's idea. How, wait, how do you know that? Because before the universe was ever created, before, before the, the cosmos was ever created, before you and I walked on this earth, God created some angels. And their role 
was to lead in worship, to sing praises to God's great name, right? Music is God's idea. And when we gather, we're causing... Paul says when you get together, you ought to sing to one another. Now, wait, what is singing? Singing is a God-ordained vehicle for truth. I love this. A God-ordained, it's his idea, vehicle for truth. In other words, when we sing, we are, we are sharing with one another wonderful doctrinal realities. Look what he says there. The word of Christ should dwell richly among us. And part of that is not just the teaching, the admonishing. Part of the word of Christ dwelling richly is singing. It's one of the ways that, that we share truth with one another. You say, Wade, why is music such an effective way to learn truth? Because there's something about our heart and our mind being captured at the same time that makes it memorable, right? There are songs we learned in childhood that taught us wonderful doctrinal realities that we know today, and we learned them first with that song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. There's something about music that is a wonderful vehicle for truth. And not only is is singing a God-ordained vehicle for truth, but singing is an avenue for us to express ourselves to God. It's an avenue to express ourselves to God. When we we think about what God has done for us, what God has done in us, what God is doing in the world, how glorious and wonderful He is, we, 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 we want to respond, don't we? How do we respond? God gives us the gift of singing to just praise His name to respond to his greatness, to tell him that we love him. Singing is that avenue. Now, here's the question, and by the way, this question has split churches. Well, Wade, what should we sing? We're called to sing. What should we sing? Well, guess what? We're not left to guess. Paul gives us some categories of songs that we ought to sing. Look what he says there in verse 16. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Three categories. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What does he mean by these three things? First of all, psalms probably refers to the Old Testament book of psalms. When the church began in the first century, and it began to spread all over uh, Judea and Samaria and into Asia and Greece, when, when the church was growing in the first century, you know what? They already had a hymn book. They had the book of Psalms, which is a collection of poetry meant to be used in worship, oftentimes, as Psalms tells us, meant to be set to musical accompaniment. And so the, the, the New Testament church, if they had an Old Testament, they had the, the, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, they had a hymn book already. And it would have been a very natural thing to them to say, let's begin to sing these worship songs in our worship. And that's probably exactly what happened. They would sing those wonderful psalms that's found in our Old Testament and make them a central part of their worship. And I believe that singing the psalms should still be a part of our worship today. And and that that happens. Did you know that? That happens. For example, the the praise song, As the Deer Pants for the Water. That comes straight from Psalm 42. This morning in my quiet time, I read Psalm 42, and I was reading it and thinking, that's, that song's straight from the Psalms. It, it's, a, it's a singing of the, the Word of God. And by the way, it's always great to sing the Word of God because if you're singing the Word of God, you know you're singing truth, right? Because it comes straight from the pages of Scripture. One of our favorite songs here at Longview Point that the choir sings, I hope they'll do again soon, 
maybe in the expansion, Joey, is the song, Thou, O Lord. We love that song. Man, what a powerful song. It comes straight from Psalm 3. It's just, it's just Bible. We sing songs like, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That comes from Psalm 119. We still sing the Psalms today, and that is altogether appropriate for us to, to sing the Psalms. And there's even a resurgence in, in church life today to sing more and more of the Psalms. That's a good thing. That's one of the categories of songs we ought to have in our churches. But there's another category here. Look what he says. Singing Psalms and hymns. Now, what are hymns? Now, remember... This was written in the first century. This was written before there was any such thing as the Baptist hymnal. So to take this verse and say, we ought to be singing out the Baptist hymnal, is not quite accurate. So wait, what's a hymn? A hymn is a song of doctrine about Christ written by the early church. So the early church began to grow in Judea, Samaria, Asia Minor, Greece, Macedonia, and they gathered together to worship. They would sing the Old Testament hymns, the Old Testament psalms, but then they began to say, you know what, we know the rest of the story. The psalms pointed to Jesus and foreshadowed what Jesus would do and, and, and how he would come to save us, but we know the, the details now, don't we? We know about Jesus leaving heaven and coming to earth, born of the Virgin Mary. We know he lived a perfect life. We know he died on the cross for our sins at Calvary. We know that he was buried, but then he rose from the grave early on the third day. We know that he ascended back to the Father, and one day he's returning. We know all of that now, so let's write some songs about that. Now that we know the details about Jesus, let's write some songs about Jesus. And they began to do that. If you remember earlier in Colossians, we studied Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we said that scholars believe that's an early New Testament church hymn. And uh, scholars believe Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11 is another hymn. First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, another hymn written by the early church where they're writing doctrinal songs about Jesus, about the, the, the Christian faith set to music to teach these wonderful theological realities. That's what a hymn is. So... Any song that we sing today that is intended to teach doctrinal realities and celebrate doctrinal realities is a hymn. Any song. So, for example, this morning we sang, Holy, Holy, Holy. I love that song. You know what we were singing this morning? We were singing doctrinal reality. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. We were singing the doctrine of the Trinity. That there's one God in essence and nature existing in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. We were singing about that today. It was a hymn. We sang in Holy, Holy, Holy about man falling far from God and yet Christ has redeemed us by his blood so we can be reconciled to a holy God. We sang that today. It's a hymn. A more recent example of a hymn is In Christ Alone, written in 2002. It just walks through Jesus and what he's done for us and what he means for our lives, the, the cross, the resurrection, the, all of that. And, and, and it's a beautiful song that just, just shares verse after verse doctrinal realities concerning Christ. And it's powerful. So any song that is a song of doctrine, Christian doctrine, that's written for us to learn, to be edified by, to celebrate is a hymn. Notice 
There's no mention in this verse of publication dates. Some people think, well, if a song's not old, I can't sing it. Or if a song's not new, I can't sing it. There's no mention of a publication date, is there? He just says, sing hymns, psalms. Make sure you are, are, are singing these songs in the body of Christ. And then there's a third category. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Wait, what are spiritual songs? Well, the word songs there is just the common word for any type of, of song. But it's modified by the adjective spiritual. That's meant to set it apart. So a spiritual song is any sacred song dwelling on Christian themes for the purpose of praise. Any sacred song dwelling on Christian themes for the purpose of praise. That, again, that word spiritual differentiates these songs that he's talking about from any other song that we might call a secular song. So, you may like the song, My Girl by The Temptations. Great song, I love it. You may like the song, Peaceful, Easy Feeling by The Eagles. You may like the song, The Dance by Garth Brooks. You may like the song, What Makes You Beautiful by One Direction. But those aren't spiritual songs. Maybe songs that you like to hear and listen to and sing along with, but they're not spiritual songs. Spiritual songs are songs that are, are written for the purpose of dwelling on a Christian theme to praise and honor God. So let me give you an example of what I would call a spiritual song. The song I Can Only Imagine. Mercy Me, great song, one of the best-selling Christian songs ever. It's a Christian theme, the idea that we get to heaven and we're in God's presence, what that's going to be like. I can only imagine how awesome it's going to be. What a great song. It's a spiritual song. Uh, it, it's different than a song that's not spiritual, a secular song. It, it's set apart because it revolves around Christian themes. This morning we sang Revelation song. Great song because it's built around Christian themes. Christ on his throne, who he is, he's holy, and we need to worship him and ascribe to him the worth that's due his name. It's a, it's a spiritual song, and it's one we ought to sing. And so we see here these categories, psalms, hymns, Spiritual songs. I love this quote from N.T. Wright. Listen to what N.T. Wright says. Together, these three terms indicate a variety and richness of Christian singing. Notice the word variety. You know that there have been people that leave their church because there was variety? What? We're going to sing Variety? No, I prefer this. We should just sing this kind of music. And if you sing something other than this kind of music, I'm leaving the church. When Paul clearly here calls for variety. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And so we ought not to be threatened by variety in the church. We ought to welcome variety in the church. I, I, I like Lecrae. He's a, I'm a big Lecrae fan. He's a hip-hop Christian artist. He, he's, a, he's a great rapper, and, and he's very talented. And his songs are just chock full of wonderful theological realities. I mean, he is, he's flat straight, straight on. And I love him. My boys love him. We love listening to Lecrae. But last night as I was tucking my kids in, I was singing with them an old hymn I learned growing up. Living for Jesus, a life that is true, striving to please him in all that I do. I want my boys, I want my, my daughter, I want my family to enjoy a variety of Christian music as long as it's doctrinally accurate. 
because Paul calls us to a variety of music. And so we see here the idea that worship is to be a, is to be a, a gathering. We're to get together, and the Word of God is front and center, and singing is part of what we do when we get together. But there's another way I want you to think about worship. Not only worship as a, a gathering, I want you to think about worship as a lifestyle. Look what it says in verse 17. And whatever you do, not just gathering together, but whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. We are to live with an awareness that we represent Jesus Christ. When it says we are to live in light of the name of Jesus, it means we are to think about his reputation. His name represents who he is. And so everything we do ought to, ought to reflect greatly on the truth of who Jesus Christ is. In other words, we should not want to tarnish Christ's reputation by the way we act. We ought, we ought to want to reflect his greatness to a watching world. That's what it means to do everything there for the, the name or in the name of the Lord Jesus. We want to represent Jesus Christ in our life. Have you ever thought about the title Christian? That's the name of Christ. And, and when we call ourselves Christian, we're, we, listen, we are representing his name, right? The very name means that, Christian. So let me just give you a small example. If you want to put something on your vehicle to identify you as a Christian, that's okay, but drive like it. Right? Because you're letting everybody know by your fish or whatever that, that, you, that you, are a, you are identified with Christ. So drive like it. If you go out to eat and you leave a track for the, for the server, tip like it. Right? We're to live with an awareness that we represent Jesus Christ. That's what the word Christian means. Now, when we have this kind of mindset, it will affect three areas of our life. First of all, this mindset guards our speech. That if we do everything for the, for the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we're representing Jesus Christ, this mindset guards our speech. Look what he says there in verse 17. Whatever you do in word. In other words, what comes out of our mouth should not bring shame on the name of Jesus Christ. If there's something that's going to come out of our mouth that will reflect poorly on the Lord Jesus, we ought not to say it. Right? Just don't say it. Over Psalm 141, David said, God set a guard over my lips. And oftentimes, we can live, and everyone knows we're followers of Christ, but our words reflect poorly on Jesus Christ. And he says, whatever you do in word, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus. This mindset guards our speech. Should I say it? Well, will it glorify Christ? Or will it dishonor Christ? And once you answer that question, then you know whether to say it or not. Here's the second thing. This mindset governs our actions. We live in a day where Christians want to know just how much they can get away with. 
is it okay to do this? Is it okay to do that? Can I get away with it? Can I get away with that? And we have a lot of discussions about liberty and freedom and what we can do and what we can't do and how close to the edge we can get. You know, those kind of discussions in the body of Christ. Here's a good template for you to make decisions about your actions. You ready? Will your action, the thing that you are wanting to do, will it represent well the name of Christ or will it bring, bring shame to the name of Christ? And if it does not glorify the name of Christ, you ought not to do it. That's pretty simple, right? That's a, a template making decisions. Should I do it? Well, can I do it in the name of the Lord Jesus? And if the answer is no, don't do it. Don't do it. It's just that simple. This mindset of lifestyle worship begins to govern your actions. But there's a third thing. This mindset guides our decision making. Guys, look what he says. Whatever you do, in word or deed, speech or actions, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything, everything, everything is done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this mindset begins to, to guide everything you do in your life. So listen to me. Worship is not just about what happens in this room on Sunday mornings. Worship is about our entire life. Everybody look at me for a moment. God wants your Mondays too. And while we're at it, your Tuesdays and Wednesdays, and just for good measure, Thursday and Friday, and let's throw in Saturday. God wants it all. Whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you're in the church building or you are in the workplace or in your school or in your home, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. I love watching the Olympics. I just do. I love it. And I thought about why, why are the Olympics so compelling? And I think it has something to do with the amount of time that these athletes put into their sport. And we know that, that these Olympic athletes have built their entire life around their sport, right? It affects what they eat. It affects where they live. It affects their schedule. It affects when they wake up in the morning, when they go to bed at night. It affects who their relationships are with. It affects everything. And when they come to that Olympic event, we know they're putting four years of, of a life investment into that moment. And it's compelling, is it not? I mean, we know that Olympic athlete doesn't just show up on the day of the event after eating, you know, Oreos all week, right? And sleeping in until noon. We know they have been preparing themselves for the For an Olympic athlete, it's not just about the event. It's about everything that goes into the event. And listen to me. Worship is not just about the Sunday morning event. Worship should guide everything we do. Everything. It should drive our life. Worship as a lifestyle. Let me give you a third thing and we'll be through. Paul speaks of worship as a gathering. Just like we're gathered here this morning. Paul discusses worship as a lifestyle. Whatever you do, word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. But I want you to think last about worship as a grateful response. Worship as a grateful response. I don't know if you noticed this as we read through Colossians, but I want to just kind of highlight uh, three verses for you. Look in verse 15. We studied this verse last week, but I want to show you how verse 15 ends. Paul writes, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be what? Thankful. That's one mention of gratitude. Look in verse 16. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's the second mention of gratitude. Look in verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. That's the third mention of gratitude in just three verses. You think Paul's trying to get a point across here? Worship is more than just a gathering. It's more than even just a lifestyle. It's a gathering. It's a lifestyle fueled by, motivated by gratitude for what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's what worship is. It is a response. When we see good things happening in our lives, gratitude reminds us that it's all because of Jesus. Verse 17, whatever you do to name the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In other words, if you're getting it, if you're living a lifestyle of worship, if good things are happening in your life, good works are being produced through your life, you know it's all because of Jesus. Can I just say this very quickly? If you see anything good happen in Wade's life, anything good come out of Wade's life, it's not because Wade's got it all figured out. It's because God has been very, very gracious to me. And anything that happens that's good in my life, anything that happens that's good in your life is a gift of the grace of God. And we ought to be grateful. Now look at that next phrase there in your notes. I wrote this this past week and it just really captured my heart. Gratitude is a sure sign, a sure sign that someone has been deeply touched by grace. You want to know if you get grace or not? Are you grateful? Is there a, an overflow of thanksgiving in your life? Our worship, our gathering, our lifestyle from Monday to Saturday, everything about our lives, it should be motivated by and saturated with thanksgiving. Psalm 100 verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. God intends thanksgiving to be a, a key part, a fundamental part of our worship. He's looking for folks that are grateful. And sometimes, by the way we live our lives, we don't seem very grateful, do we? We're just kind of going through the motions. I want to introduce someone to you that I learned about recently. Never heard of him before. But his name is Sir Nicholas Winton. He was a resident of Great Britain. And he's well known because in 1938, he organized the rescue of 669 mostly Jewish children from German-occupied Czechoslovakia. People call him the British Schindler. What happened is, Sir Nicholas Winton heard that, that these Jewish children and Jewish families were, were under the threat of the Nazis coming in and, and putting them in concentration camps and committing genocide. And so he arranged to go into Prague, and he arranged for safe passage for hundreds of Jewish children out of Czechoslovakia through the Netherlands, all the way back to Great Britain. And then he arranged for families to take these children in and provide 
for their needs. It's a really remarkable story of all that this man did to save children's lives. Well, I saw a clip of a video recently from a, a television show in the 80s. And this man, Sir Nicholas Witness, sitting there in the audience, and someone on the platform is talking about his life and his heroic deeds. And then the man on the platform says, if you're here, there's an audience in the, in the studio. The man said, if you're here and you are one of those children rescued by Sir Nicholas Winton, would you stand? And everyone that was sitting around him stood up, about 80 folks. Now, do you think those folks were just going through the motions? No. There were tears. There was passion. There was joy. Because those people were in the presence of their rescuer. It was a powerful gathering. And isn't that what worship should be all about? Not just going through the motions. Not just showing up because that's what you're supposed to do. But we get together and we realize we are in the presence of our Savior. We are in the presence of our Redeemer. We are in the presence of our Rescuer. And there are tears and there is joy and there is passion because we're in His presence. And worship is not just a a step you go through to check the religious box. Worship is is a grateful response to the grace of God, the saving grace of God in your life. Paul says, as you worship, don't forget to give thanks. Let gratitude drive your worship. And so I hope it's not true of us. That we worship our work. And work at our play. And simply play at our worship. What if, what if worship became the dominant theme of our lives? Can you imagine, can you imagine what God would do through that kind of life?